If you're new with us, again, like Augusta said, welcome. We just want to invite you into our community, into our family here at Sedaris. We hope you can find a way to, to get connected. And, and definitely don't hesitate to come ask me any questions or any of our leaders any questions. There'll be a couple people up here to pray at the end of the service. So definitely come up if you need prayer, if you feel like God's put something on your heart, if you need just help praying for something. So, so glad that you're here. Let's pray as we enter into a time of teaching where we look at the Word of God, for it is our source, it is our life, it draws us into the presence of our God. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this collection of souls that you've brought together in this room today. We don't know exactly the condition or the place that we all step into, but we know who you are, and we know that you'll speak to us today because we're going to open your word. And so whatever message you have for my friends here, new or old, God, I just pray that it would not be stolen away, that it wouldn't, the distraction or what's coming after church uh, would not lead us away from the message that you have. So I just pray for protection over that. I pray for ears to hear what you have to say this morning. So we ask you to send your spirit. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, hey, if you're just now coming in, we're, we're about four, four weeks into a sermon series in 1 Corinthians, the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, grab it. If you don't, there's a, some black ones that look like this on, in the seat back in front of you. You can grab that. We're going to be uh, in chapter 1 today, so that's going to be on page 1011 if you're using uh, one of these black Bibles. Uh, if not, feel free to Google 1 Corinthians. I'm going to be reading from the CSB, that's the Christian Standard Bible, but any translation will do. So uh, we have now done an introduction, which we did a few weeks ago, where we talked about this whole book is about Paul helping the church in Corinth, the church that he helped to start. He was the planter of the church, uh, and then he's gone away, and he writes this letter back because he's heard that they've fallen out of step with the message of the gospel, and so he's going to help them move back in step with what we've said is the peculiar wisdom of Christ, and so uh, it doesn't always make sense, and so today we get into those really the first, we'll have like two or three weeks of talking about wisdom. You're just going to see this word wisdom over and over and over again, and so um, before I read the text, I just want to, to get us in the right frame of mind. And what is the frame of mind that I want you in this morning? I want you to feel embarrassment. We say, why would you want me to feel embarrassment? I need you to go back to like eighth grade <laughs> and remember that time when you felt most embarrassed. It's just a quick raise of hand. Has anyone seen the movie Eighth Grade, written and directed by Bo Burnham? Okay, a few, a few. <laughs> this movie, if you are struggling to connect with your embarrassment, just go watch this movie. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, it's really good at helping you feel what it like to, like, was like to be in eighth grade. Now, for some of you, that's like terrifying, and you've blocked that out of your memory, and that's okay. So I don't want to open up that wound necessarily. <laughs> but but um, I, I want us to feel embarrassment, because here's the deal. You never really grow out of that eighth grader. And guess what? The Corinthian church was full of eighth graders who were so, well, they were so worried about how they came off to everybody around them. It, it doesn't really leave us. 
It's a part of being human. Embarrassment is a part of what it means to be human. You can't avoid it. And when you try, bad things happen. So we'll see that today. So go with me now. Um, There's this great scene in the movie Eighth Grade uh, where Kayla, this just sweet, beautiful eighth grader, uh, she's, she's doesn't get invited to a lot of parties, and so she gets invited to this party, and uh, it's a pool party, and she walks in, and, and it's just like all the feelings flooded back for me. I just felt them all. So I just want you to think. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or anything, but think about for you, what was the most embarrassing <laughs> part of going to a party? Was it uh, not knowing many people at the party? Was it not knowing what the dress code was supposed to be, and then you show up and you realize you're dressed incorrectly. Maybe it's um, when you get to the party, there's several people that don't know your name. That's embarrassing. Maybe you get to the party and people are talking and they're sharing about their favorite music or or something like that, and then uh, somebody asks you a question like, hey, Dave, you know, what's your favorite Wilson Phillips song? In the crowd. You don't know who Wilson Phillips is? <laughs> this actually happened to me this week. I brought up Wilson Phillips with somebody, and they're like, never heard of him. I was like, you don't know Wilson Phillips? Hold on one more time. And I just had that experience with you. So you all felt embarrassment. How could you not know Wilson Phillips? At one time, bigger than Madonna. Beat her out on the Billboard's number one chart. Look it up. Look it up. And you'll see how far music videos have come in the last 30 years. I mean, this was number one song in the whole world. And uh, what if that, has that happened to you? I, I don't really know who you're talking about. Or you don't know the, 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 the answer to a question. So you feel dumb. You feel out of the loop. Maybe the most embarrassing thing for you is to feel uh, that your power is sort of limited. So something, there's a, maybe there's a bully or somebody that's physically intimidating that's telling you where you can sit, where you can stand, where you can't sit or stand. So it's this power, you, you feel a lack of power. And that, oh. So we've all had something, right? We've all had something. And this is sort of the truth about embarrassment. It's not exactly the same for each of us. Each of us is embarrassed more by different things, but we all know that feeling of embarrassment, that feeling. Now, perhaps there is one thing that we share in common, one embarrassing um, fear that is common to all. And the reason I'm thinking that this might be common is that my son Grayson, six-year-old son, came to me like a few weeks ago and said, he said, he said, Dad, I had the worst dream last night. And I was like, oh, what, you know, what was it? And he always has strange dreams, you know, monster frogs chasing and things like this. And uh, unfortunately, this was even worse. He said to me, Dad, I had a dream that I showed up to school and I was naked. And I was like, six, six years old? I've had that. And I said, Grayson, I had that same dream in elementary school. Now, this may be an Avanger thing. How many of you have had a dream of showing up and you were naked? Has anybody, am I the only, in my family? The, okay. This could be, like, why is this dream so common? My six-year-old's having this dream. I pray, like, this is not good. I said, Grayson, don't worry about that kind of stuff. <laughs> it won't happen. 
in real life. But I remember having that dream very vividly. I can even picture the dream now, and I have a bad memory, because it was so disturbing. Maybe this is the common dream. Maybe this is actually a fear as old as the garden. You know which garden I'm talking about? At the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were naked and unashamed. They were naked and unembarrassed. But then something happened. What happened? You remember what happened? It says that a talking serpent of some kind comes in and begins to tell them, see that tree over there? Why don't you eat of that? And they say, well, we can eat of any tree, but God's actually told us uh, that's the one tree we shouldn't. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and the servant says, well, that's weird. I mean, you, 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 most cert- you certainly won't die, or maybe you won't. Or It's not so clear that you'll die if you eat that. And so it says that they desired the fruit. They desired what? Wisdom and knowledge that came autonomous from God. They said, I want wisdom and knowledge, and I don't want to have to go through God to get it. That was the original temptation. And they eat. It says their eyes were opened. They had new kinds of wisdom. And it says what? They became naked. In a sh- or they were already still naked, and now they were ashamed. And it says they went and they hid from God. And then they did what? They sowed, they sowed fig leaves, coverings to cover themselves. So maybe this common fear, this dream that so many of us have had, maybe somehow it's baked deep down. Almost like we don't learn it, but it's a part of us. This fear of embarrassment, of being found out, of standing before those we care about, but knowing that we're naked. And so, in the garden, embarrassment entered the human experience. And it hasn't gone away. And that's why we can watch a movie like Eighth Grade, and it just resonates. I watched it with Allie last night. She'd never seen it. I've seen it a couple times. And she was like, this was rough. (laughs) But it's also beautiful. Because she works through her embarrassment. Spoiler alert. It's worth watching. So... You feeling that? You feeling the angst, the tension, of the fear of embarrassment? So I'm going to read the text now, um, and then we're going to look at. May not be clear, but we'll, I'll show you what I think is actually happening here in Corinth. And before I read it, just know this: the Apostle Paul, he he was like the kid in eighth grade who won the superlative of most likely to succeed. This guy was as wise as they come. Back in the fall, we studied him in the city of Athens, which is not far from Corinth. And in Athens, he was speaking with all the philosophers, and he was quoting verbatim from memory pagan philosophers and using that as a connecting point to explain the gospel. This guy was, went to the Ivy League of religious studies. This guy is wise. This guy is smart. This guy is not weak of mind, of philosophy, but he's going to put something on here for the sake of the gospel and of those who are trapped in this cycle 
of embarrassment. So just, just listen for that. So we're going to start in verse 17, which is uh, kind of a hinge verse. was the last verse, verse of last week, just to remind us where we're coming from. So this is the hinge verse. Verse 17, chapter 1. It says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Go back and, and see what, why Paul's bringing that up. But, but Paul's saying, Christ sent me to you, and he didn't send me just to baptize, but to do what? But to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom. So you see, there's a peculiar kind of wisdom, not eloquent wisdom. Why? So that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, now he's going to quote the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God, through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Gentiles, you could say, to the Greeks. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to go back through it slowly now, but just on first glance, maybe you're thinking, is he just sort of setting, setting the stage of saying like, you know, I'm not so wise and so maybe you don't like my message because it's not wise? No. He's saying, I choose to boast in, we'll see this later in the letter, the simplicity of the gospel, even though I could go toe-to-toe with any of your philosophers. So it's important to see that's what he's doing. He's not, he's not just trying to make an excuse for why the gospel is, is simple, right? Because you'll hear this argument in our city. Well, it's just a simple backwoods, backwater thinking, you know. We've evolved past this. Paul's, Paul, Paul's saying no. God is pleased to use what some call foolish to show the foolishness of the world's wisdom. So this is a strange dynamic. So let's, let's go through it now. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness. Okay. It's foolishness to who? Those who are perishing. Now, this, this word, the word, is actually the word logos which is used by John of Jesus. Jesus is the Logos of God. And the same word is used back in verse uh, 5 where it says, uh, Paul is thanking God that he's blessed them and enriched them in every way in all speech, that's the word Logos, and all knowledge. So that's just interesting to see a tie there that Paul has already said, you've been given all the speech you need, and yet the speech of the cross... Some see as foolish. He's just, he's just pointing out there's not something you need to learn that you don't already know. You got it all. You got all the speech. So it's the message or the speech. The logos of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, 
Anytime you see the word foolishness, uh, just underline it because you're going to see it a lot. It's the same word said four times, foolishness. So Paul's just drilling into our head. To many people, you will seem foolish when you attach yourself to the message of the word of the cross. And he says, in fact, everyone who is not in the second group of people that he's about to say will think that you're foolish. So look at it again. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Paul is being very clear. There's two types of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And everyone who is in the group that is perishing, they see the message of the cross as foolish. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God in our lives. Now, both of these phrases, those who are perishing and us who are being saved, this is in the Greek the present passive uh, participle, okay? So if you're a grammar person, here's what that means. Um, In the present, these people are currently being saved. So participle means it's ongoing action. And And it comes across as how it's translated here. We are being saved. We are saved, justified in Christ, but we are being saved through his power in our lives day by day as we begin to move in step with him. So there is an act of salvation that's happening for those of us who put ourselves underneath the message of the cross. We are being saved. And in the same way, and and notice the passive, God is saving us. We are not saving ourselves. It's the passive. He is saving us. In the same way, this other group who thinks that the word of the cross is foolishness, they are actually presently, actively perishing. They're not all the way gone, which is why there's much good in people who think that the cross is, is foolishness. But they're, they're deteriorating is what Paul's saying. They're, moving fur, they're becoming less and less image bearers of God. They're perishing. It's an, it's an active process. Those who are fading away. Those who are perishing. And again, it's also passive. They're not purposely trying to perish themselves. It's just happening. When, they, when you deny God and you deny the word of the cross, the peculiar wisdom, you begin to perish. So important to see that. Now, guess what? It's still really hard when a whole group of people in a city like Seattle, the majority of the people think the thing you believe is foolishness. Even if you are being saved by it. Even if you are coming alive because of it. It's really hard. So what does he say next? He says, there's nothing new here. (laughs) That's what he's saying. For it was written hundreds of years ago, prophesied, predicted by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes the Old Testament. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. And then he goes on to say, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? That's the religious person. Where is the debater of the age? That's the great philosopher. Now, particularly to the Jews he would have been speaking to, 
they would have known this passage. You probably don't know it, so I'm going to read it to you. So if you're in the Bible, you can turn there. If you've got one of these pew Bibles, um, Isaiah chapter 29 is where Paul is quoting from. Isaiah 29, so this can be on page 625 if you're using one of these black pew Bibles. Page 625. So I'm going to read a big section here because I oftentimes in the New Testament, uh, when a writer quotes the Old Testament, they don't just have the immediate uh, sentence or two in mind. They have the bigger context. And you're going to see why this, I think Paul has this in mind when he quotes this. Here's what he says. Chapter 29, big 29, verse 13 is where we're going to start. The Lord said, so this is the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord said, these people, speaking about the people of Israel, they approach me with their speeches. Interesting. To honor me with lip service. Yet their hearts are far from me. And human rules direct their worship of me. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise will vanish and the perception of their perceptive will be hidden. There's that direct quote. Then he goes on to say, Woe to those who to go to great lengths to hide their plans from the Lord. They do their work in the dark and say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? Isn't it true that in just a little while, Lebanon will become an orchard, and the orchard will seem like a forest? On that day, the deaf, uh, the deaf will hear the words of a document. And out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord. And the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless, the ruthless one, what happens to him? He will vanish. The scorner will disappear. And all those who lie in wait with evil intent will be killed. Those who with their speech accuse a person of wrongdoing who set a trap for the one meditating at the city gate and without cause deprive the righteous of justice. This is God speaking. Therefore, the Lord who redeemed Abraham says this about the house of Jacob. House of Jacob is just a way to reference the people of God, the people of Israel. Jacob will no longer be ashamed. You could say, Jacob will no longer be embarrassed and his face will no longer be pale for when he sees his children the work of my hands within his nation they will honor my name they will honor the holy one of Jacob and stand in awe of the God of Israel this is what Paul is bringing to our attention that it always was going to be like this that there were scoffers and scorners and bullies who said, you're foolish, you're weak, look at you. you, you worship a crucified Savior. What? You want me to follow him, the bloodied, beaten Jesus, the carpenter's son? Yeah, right. It's always been predicted that God would use their wisdom to shame them. 
So back to our text. So what is Paul saying when he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of the age? He's pointing to this future reality when Jesus does come to fulfill his full kingdom and, we, and, and everyone stands before him. Now those scorners are a little bit, a little bit quiet, aren't they? Those so, so-called popular kids, those bullies, they stand now before the wisdom of God and God will say, where, where were those wise folks who thought they were wiser than me? Where were those debaters of the age who thought they could debate me? Where are those religious types who said they were holier than thou? I don't hear them anymore. That's what Paul is bringing to our forefront. What's predicted by Isaiah, the same thing. So he's, he said, listen, don't be surprised by this. And he says, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. And the important thing here is know is not an intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. No one knew God experientially through the wisdom of the world or even through following just the religious law. So God was pleased to save those who believed through what? Through this foolish message of a cross. That pleased God. Through what we've been preaching, Paul says. For the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a foolishness to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. Now, then he goes on to say, but we know this foolish message saved us. We are not the same. So what's going on here? What's Paul really trying to say and help the people do? He's trying to help them keep it simple. Because you see, particularly the Greeks in the church, they preferred eloquence, great orators over and above the gospel. It's not that they denied the gospel, but they would allow an eloquent orator, a wise philosopher, to get their attention over and above the simple gospel. So they think, my friends, my family, my coworkers, so even their heart is good, they think they, they'll be able to accept this good news of Jesus, you know, if it's just sort of set in the context of some really clever, wise, well-spoken, maybe even famous, crafty philosophers of the day. Then the message of God can be drunk in. But I don't know if people will really accept this. See, they're embarrassed by the gospel. And Paul's saying, you don't need any of that. Paul will say in the book of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. Why are you ashamed? You don't need any of that. We preach simply Christ crucified. That's enough. Because God's power and God's wisdom are pregnant in this simple message. Waiting to burst forth into the world. 
So don't, don't cover it up with all this extra junk. It's powerful enough. And when you present it simply, then it has its full effect. Because people don't think, well, did I like that message because it was presented so perfectly? Or, the, you know, like we talked about last week, uh, the orator was funny and hilarious and cool and all this stuff. Said, we, don't, we don't want people to get confused about what's happening when they hear the message of the cross. He says, God has more wisdom in his pinky than all the philosophers of Greece combined. God has more power in the hem of his robe than the mighty empires of Rome and Persia and, and Babylon and Assyria combined. You don't need to add to it. But yet we still struggle to believe that, right? I know I do. I struggle to believe that the word of the cross is enough. Um, so share a little example of this. When I was, I was 26 or 27 years old, I'd, I'd already committed to Jesus. I'd already committed um, to leave my job, and I was going back to seminary to study, to, to, to do some kind of ministry. I didn't know I'd be a pastor at that time. And I had a, my best friend growing up. Um, he was married to uh, a gal that did not know the Lord. In fact, kind of had negative feelings towards Christians and had bad experiences in the past. She was actually um, a counselor by trade. And so she, she was very smart. She'd studied psychology and uh, and one day I convinced them to come to, to, to church with me. And um, I, the church I picked, I, we were both actually in town from out of town. So the church I picked happened to be the church where, where many would say, this guy is really smart. He's, he's very philosophical. And I remember thinking in my head, this might be the thing that convinces her. If I just take her to this particular church with this particular preacher... Who, who speaks, which uh, objectively speaking, he's a great orator, he was funny, and um, he's a philosopher. I said, if I could take her there, then, then maybe the gospel might sink in. This is what I was thinking. I was thinking, um, I bet she'll think he's really smart, and she probably has a view of Christians that they're not very smart. I was thinking in my head, maybe she will listen because uh, he's such a great orator. He'll sort of joke her into the kingdom. <laughs> That's what I thought. I was thinking to myself, even if she doesn't respond positively or change her mind about who Christ is, at least, this is what I was thinking, at least I won't be embarrassed. Because I'll be like, well, you can't say anything because that guy is real smart. So I was worried about my own embarrassment. So we take her, we sit. It's a like it always had been every time I'd been to that church. It was a great, deep, philosophical message. In fact, the preacher was even quoting secular psychologists. I thought, she's going to love this. <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong. Got back in our car and we started driving, and the look on her face, I could not have been more embarrassed. I couldn't have been more embarrassed. She said, wow, that preacher was trying so hard to act smart. She said, that preacher was trying so hard to be funny. That preacher was trying so hard to be clever, and it backfired on me. 
I've never felt more embarrassed. And she was right. She wasn't able to hear the gospel message at all because there was so much built up around it. I couldn't have been more wrong. Here's what I'm trying to say. Paul's saying, I could do this, I'm smart enough to do this, but I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna keep it simple. The simple gospel, the word of the cross, foolishness to the Greeks, yeah, I know. The Jews, they think it lacks power, yeah, I know, but it is the power of God. Paul's saying, you don't need a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine of the gospel go down. You don't. Because you've got the Holy Spirit. Turn over just one chapter. Chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says this, Now God has revealed these things to us by what? The Spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Jump down to verse 14. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So you don't need a spoonful of sugar to help it go down. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, keep it simple. And he does say, even when it embarrasses you. So why was this so embarrassing? Well, probably make sense. I've been kind of focusing how the Greeks, who are probably more like us, thought they were real smart, loved philosophy. They just couldn't handle the simplicity of it. <laughs> they couldn't see how it was really wisdom. So that's the Greeks. They were prone to, to follow and desire great philosophy. But different people are embarrassed by different things. So they're embarrassed by that. So they wanted to add to it. But, but people are embarrassed differently. The Jews that were a part of the church, they were embarrassed by something else. What were they embarrassed by? It says the cross, the message of the cross, was a stumbling block to them. You can even say it was a scandal to them. Why was that the thing for them? Let me try to explain. Why was it such a stumbling block? Verse 23. Why was the cross such a stumbling block? Well, um, what you have to understand is, in the Old Testament... Um, it was said that anyone who is hung upon a tree, we're about to sing a song called One Hanging on a Tree. Anyone that was hung on a tree was considered cursed by God. And so here comes Paul telling people that the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that would save them, is actually, we celebrate him with what? The image of him hanging on a tree. See how much of a stumbling block that would be if your whole life you've been told that person is cursed? Now, for those of us who know the gospel, that's actually true. Jesus was cursed by God. God's wrath due to us for our sin was poured out into Jesus on the cross. He was cursed by God. That relationship eternal between the Father and the Son was separated on our behalf. So it is true. But the Jews, it was such a stumbling block for them they were embarrassed by it when they would go tell their other Jewish friends that they were Christians. Well, isn't that the Jewish uh, the, the preacher who was crucified on a Roman cross? That's who you worship? See how embarrassing that would be? You see, they wanted power. They were always an oppressed people. And so they thought their Messiah was coming to give them power. 
What kind of power? Political power. What kind of power? Moral power. What kind of power? Uh, Somebody to follow. So that first kind of power that they wanted in their Messiah, their Savior, which is the Greek word Christ, the Hebrew word Messiah is, is the Greek word Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. That first power that they wanted was somebody to give them political, military superiority. Why? Because they needed somebody to overthrow the Romans who were oppressing them. They needed somebody before that to overthrow the Greeks who were oppressing them. Before that, the Assyrians who oppressed them. Before that, the Babylonians who oppressed them. Before that, all the way back to the book of Exodus, the Egyptians who enslaved them, right? They've always felt uh, like they needed a Messiah to give them political, military power. Here's the problem. Jesus is just this humble carpenter who never once picked up a sword, who never once said he had any desire for political power. Instead, he just was a weak, humble servant hanging on a tree. Stumbling block. The second power that they wanted, someone to give them moral or religious superiority. Because why? Because we are the Jews. We are the good moral ones. Because God loves us because we are good. We want the Messiah to tell us, yes, you've been doing it right and everybody's doing it wrong. We want people to come in and say, yeah, when you follow the Torah, God will love you. Here's the problem. Jesus came in and he said, you know what? doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the religious law. All are morally inadequate. And therefore, I will give my life as a ransom for your inadequate." religious living see as it's a stumbling block wait a minute we've been trying so hard we've given up so much and now jesus comes in and says we're not superior we're like everyone else that's a stumbling block that's embarrassing finally that third power that they wanted they wanted somebody who was visually superior they wanted somebody to be proud of Someone to be their spokesperson in the world. Someone who could, you know, that people look to be like, I wish I was Jewish like them. It's that poster child. It's that feeling that you want a poster child. Somebody to boast in. Somebody to dress like. Somebody to be proud of. Here's the problem. Like we said, Jesus... The picture, the poster of Jesus hanging all over town is a beaten, bloodied, bruised, dead Messiah. How embarrassing. That's the scandal of the cross. How embarrassing that you say that's our Messiah who we've been waiting for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's who you want me to worship? You see, let's add a little bit to it because we wanted power. In fact, the crucifixion was so crude that people wouldn't even bring up crucifixion in polite company. It was just that thing out of sight, out of mind. We don't even talk about the thing that the Romans do to criminals. And yet you want me to bring that into the conversation and worship that? That's so embarrassing. I was thinking this week, like, I grew up, you know, worshiping Michael Jordan. I was a basketball player. And there's this famous meme of him out there from when he's long retired of him crying. And he just looks like such a weak, <laughs> this sort of 
And like, I was thinking, like, probably more young people know that image of Michael Jordan than the one I know, <laughs> right? Like, they're like, oh, the guy with the crying meme. He's, like, weeping. It's, it's, it's very embarrassing. And, and they don't know. I mean, it's like, yeah, but you've got to know about this guy. There's actually all this power in this guy. And they're like, no, the image I've seen online, when I Google Michael Jordan, it's probably the crying meme comes up. That's what people are like. I don't know if I want that to be the guy I follow. So this is what's going on. The Greeks wanted something a little bit more clever, a little bit more wise. The Jews wanted somebody of power to come behind and follow. And Paul says, if that's what you desire, you'll miss the wisdom and the power of God. Because that came together in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, who hung on a tree. And you got to decide. Do you want the world's wisdom, the world's power, or do you want God's wisdom and God's power? As a group of who's perishing and there's a group who is being saved. And it's not so clear right now, but Paul's telling you, one day it will be. Where is the philosopher? Where is the political power man? Where is the military man? One day it will become very clear. This is my big hope for us, how to apply this message. What do I hope you do with it? I hope that you actually choose to embrace embarrassment now. Embrace embarrassment now. There's so much to be embarrassed by as a follower of Jesus. When you get in step with Jesus, there is so much to be embarrassed by. Not just the message that our Savior died on a cross, but also the things that we're called to do. You might be talking to a friend and they say, wait, you give up every Sunday to do what? That's weird. And you might feel a little embarrassed. Why, I can't go to that thing. I I can't do that thing because I'm going to worship Jesus. The crucified guy? Yeah. It could be people ask you like, well, why do you still drive that car? You make a lot of money. <laughs> you make a lot of money working for Amazon. What are you doing driving that car? Well, I, I give like the first tenth of my money to God's mission. What? Why? It's a bit embarrassing. You're friends with Who? These are your friends? Yeah. But you guys don't have anything in common. Yeah. <laughs> you don't trust the same. Yeah. These are my brothers and sisters. I love them more than I love you, actually. But we've known each other our whole lives. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of embarrassing at times to follow in step with Jesus. So why do it? Well, because it's the way to get in step with Jesus, the one who embraced ultimate embarrassment, who came down and didn't consider life in heaven with eternal Father, eternal Son, eternal Spirit, something to be grasped onto, but he gave that up to take on flesh and die, even die on a Roman cross. Because he embraced it. He embraced it. So you want to be in step with him? You embrace it. Now, Your embarrassment now 
then might save a friend, family member, from what? Eternal embarrassment. There's this great, again, I'm, I apologize for my old school quotes. I'm feeling old. But there's a great movie, the, the best movie that Adam Sandler ever made. Some of you don't even know who Adam Sandler is. The best movie, Adam, called Billy Madison. The premise is this. Billy Madison grew up in a super rich house, so he never finished school because he was just going to take over his dad's business. But then to take over the business, he's got to actually graduate from elementary school. So he goes back, and he starts in kindergarten. And, he, and so he becomes kind of cool because he's pretty big, he's pretty strong, he can do cool stuff because he's like 25 years old. And, and so the kids think he's pretty cool. Well, one day, this kid in the class, they're, on, they're out on a field trip, and this kid pees his pants. And Billy's over there, and he's like, what are you doing hiding in the corner? And he shows him he's, he's peed his pants. And Billy says, oh, man, what do I do? And so he goes over to the water fountain, and he takes water, and he pats it on his crotch. So it looks like he's peed his pants. And then everybody comes over, and they point at at uh, Billy and this other kid, and they go, look, they peed their pants. And Billy says, yeah, you ain't cool unless you pee your pants. And all the kids are like, yeah. And so they all pee their pants. It's the greatest scene in all of cinema. Okay, so you got to look it up. What is Billy doing for this kid who has less power than him, less knowledge than him, less wisdom than him? He's embracing embarrassment now so that this kid won't be embarrassed forever. You got to understand the difference between temporary embarrassment and eternal embarrassment. And this is, again, we've been saying, every time we look at a passage, we got to go to the key that unlocks the whole letter to the Corinthians, which is chapter 15, my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. What is chapter 15 all about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all those who attach themselves to his power. It is promised that we will all experience a resurrection, which is what? Which means that Jesus' embarrassment on the cross was temporary. How long did it last? Three days. And he rose from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? All who receive Christ's work on the cross, who embrace the wisdom of God through substitutionary atonement so that our sin died with Jesus on that cross and we have new power in the Spirit through his resurrection, we too, even if we experience embarrassment now, will one day no longer experience embarrassment. We too will have a resurrection like his. And we too will then be seen as those who have nothing to be embarrassed by because it was the power of God that brought us back. This is the big idea. The antidote for embarrassment is the resurrection. That's the antidote. So if you don't believe the resurrection, of course you're going to be embarrassed and your embarrassment or fear of embarrassment is going to drive your life. But if you know that the resurrection is true, that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore we too will rise with him, you can embrace temporary embarrassment because you know and love people around you and don't want them to experience eternal embarrassment. It's totally human to avoid embarrassment. I just want you to hear that. It's totally human. That's why we follow and worship Jesus, who was not only human, but also the Son, the man of heaven. It's divine power that he offers us because we don't in our flesh have the power to choose 
eternal embarrassment over temporary. We will always take the nearest, which is an escape from embarrassment. But Jesus, if we're living in his power and step with him, can actually say, I'll be embarrassed now so that you might know your Savior. This is my life. (laughs) Up until I was 24 years old, I knew Jesus, I knew the gospel, I believed it, but I was so embarrassed. 90% of my friends did not know Jesus. And so I kept it to myself because I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want them to look at me sideways and think, that's what you believe? And so though I experienced the power transforming me, I kept it from them. And then my sister died, for those of you who know my story. And I said, what am I doing? The thing that I believe will reconnect me with my sister, I'm keeping from my friends who I say I love. And I did what? I embraced embarrassment. It's embarrassing to leave a high-paying trajectory towards business success and tell your friends, I'm, I'm going to go start a church. Most of them would be like, is that legal? Are you like, allowed to do that? I know you. You're not that great. They would say things like that. But I said, you know what, guys? I'm going to embrace embarrassment now because I don't want you to have eternal embarrassment. That's my story. And that's a huge thing. We started the Consider Concerts. We started the Consider Project. We started this church to say, like, you don't have to have tragedy enter your life before you stop being embarrassed of the word of the cross. It is the power of God to save. It is the wisdom of God. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't keep it to yourself like I did for the first 25 years of my life. Embrace embarrassment now. Guess what? You get to do it with a lot of other people who are embracing the same message, embracing the same embarrassment, and you can come and tell funny stories about how people think it's illegal for you to start a church. (laughs) You'll have your own stories. We all get to pee our pants together (laughs) for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Now, a quick message to those of you who maybe have yet to embrace Jesus. I just want to tell you, don't wait. Don't wait. You say, well, it's going to be so embarrassing to tell people that I'm now a Christian. We're here. We're a family together. Yes, the embarrassment will be real. I don't want to lie to you. Some people will look sideways at you. They won't want to spend time with you like they once did. But the fear of embarrassment is nothing compared to the glory of God. That's, friends, that's, that's my hope. That whatever level of fear you have, whether it's to tell people the word of the cross or to embrace the word of the cross, that the fear of embarrassment, what it does is it keeps you from real power. So the fear of embarrassment is this. The fear of embarrassment is you handing over um, to other human beings the ultimate power in your life. That's what the fear of embarrassment does. You're saying, here, you have it, and I'll do whatever you say to do so that I don't feel embarrassed by you. You're handing over your power. But that's not the only option. 
The Bible tells us what? That the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of what? Wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? It's handing your life to God and giving him power over every part of you. So who do you want to have power over you? The God who said, I loved you so much that I sent my only son to die for you or mere human beings that are exactly like you? You know yourself. Are you trustworthy? People give you power over their life? Uh, in, at the end of this movie, the eighth grade, Kayla says something amazing. She says this. She says, just because things are happening to you right now doesn't mean that they are always going to happen to you. My hope is that you replace this fear of embarrassment with not just fear of the Lord, because that term can be a little misunderstood, but that you replace your fear of embarrassment with hope in Jesus Christ. That's the exchange. And you don't have to worry because you're already invited to another party, a great party, an eternal party, where guess what? Everyone will know your name, including the creator of the universe. And guess what? No one will have power over you except for your Savior who tenderly and lovingly put himself on a cross for you. This is an eternal party. This is what you're invited to. And so I'm going to pray here now. If you've never received and said yes to this invitation, don't wait. Please don't wait, Jesus says. So I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if you want to ask God, if you want to invite him into your life to take power over your life, you can do that this morning. You can just follow along with me. So would you bow your head and pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were not embarrassed by us, that you weren't so embarrassed with us that you just started over that you weren't so embarrassed by us that you didn't decide to step in and take on humanity to save us. God, I pray for all of my friends that the fear of embarrassment would not keep them from the power and the wisdom of the cross of your son. God, if anyone wants to pray and embrace the cross right now, hear their plea. You could just pray something like this. Father God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of your wisdom and chose to live my life based on my own wisdom. God, I know that you love me so much that you sent your son into the world and he took on my sin on the cross. Thank you. Jesus. And God, I know that to prove that his embarrassment was not eternal but temporary, you rose him from the grave.
proving that it's finished, that all that embarrassment that keeps me from you is now washed away by the blood of Jesus. I receive that, God. Thank you for making me whole again, taking away my shame so that I can stand in your presence again. God, I embrace now. I give you power over my life. Take it. Mold me into who you want me to be. If you prayed that prayer, you can say, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and by his spirit.